0: To the Lulu Logic Podcast. I'm Nick Lewis. I'm your host. Today's a fun one. I had so much fun with this one because I've known this guy now for uh, 12 years, and our lives are so intertwined. And one of the coolest things is when you know someone, but then you learn more about them. And we've always had different types of conversations. He picks on me, I pick on him. You'll see what I'm talking about. But I'm glad that you get to enjoy this conversation that I had with one of my greatest friends. Here it goes. This is the Lulu Logic Podcast. Today's guest is from Martinsville, Virginia, and played D-tackle at Eastern Eastern. Oh, I'll say Eastern Washington. Hey, RP, RP is not on here, guys. East <laughs> ECU, E-C-U. <All> Irens. Right, right. <laughs> East Carolina, and then went on to play in the NFL for the Super Bowl-winning Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then a few other teams, including my Dallas Cowboys, before coming north to the Montreal Alouettes, and then the Calgary Stampeders, where we became teammates, and has been coaching for the last eight years, the uh, three as a DC, and last year as the head coach of the BC Lions. Welcome to the show, Devon Clay Brooks. Biscuit, what's up? What up,
1: man? Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, let's go ahead and get this out of the way. Go ahead and tell everybody why your n- nickname is Biscuit. Well, uh
1: ironically, I mean it, it gets kind of confusing because we're in Canada and
0: <laughs> most uh
1: most um uh, Europeans and things like that from the English descent um equate biscuit as a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> and they ate back, muffins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um uh, basically. Growing up, I used to eat, my grandmother used to make these hot, you know, from the South, so hot buttermilk biscuits. She used to make them every day after school, and um, she said, I eat so many biscuits I used to eat them all with honey on them things, and uh, she was like, I eat so many biscuits, she's going to call me Biscuit. And then, when I got to college, like, you know your parents take you to college that day, and so she's calling me Biscuit, and I'm, I don't know my roommate from Adam, and uh, we're, we're just, you know, unpacking our stuff, my grandparents unpacking my stuff and stuff, and then the first team meeting that night, we had to welcome to the team meeting. And so they were like, do you ha- anybody? Like, so they say your name, where you're from. And then they said, do you have any nicknames? And I was like, no. And then my roommate was like, yay, dude, it's grandma calling Biscuit. Because he <laughs> got a big Biscuit head. And then I bet it was over. That just stuck. Oh, yeah. Now, even even this morning on the interview with uh, Sportsnet, uh, uh,
0: James was like, um, James' first thing said, what's
1: up, Biscuit?
0: <laughs> yeah, how's how's life been with COVID?
1: Well, I mean, it, it's kind of like I, I I welcome the slowing the slowing down. Like, I mean, it's actually good to actually, you know, take some time to yourself because this is the first year that I'm not in football or not involved. I mean, last year at this time we were getting bit, bit by a million mosquitoes and loops. <laughs> a lot of so mosquitoes. I mean. Yeah, it's 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 crazy because you know as being a diabetic, you know I'm a high risk. I'm higher risk than the average person, so you have to be extremely careful on those type of things. I think it's you know imperative to take care of yourself. You get luckily, like for us, we're in uh, Canada, so you get you get fairly sustainable information from every avenue, like you know your province, your government. They're pretty much saying the same thing, unlike in the U.S., where you know you got the president getting up there saying inject yourself with this do this do this and that type of thing so i mean it's it's great to be in canada to be completely honest dealing with this type of thing and and i think that it can only build i mean i'm listening and i was just talking to my mom and she was telling me that like four of her um there's four houses you know we're from the country you can relate to the country like my town is than oh, yeah York, so. <laughs> 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 but um, it's was, it was ironic because my mom said that her best friend's sister just passed away with COVID, and the reason – and she never left her house in three months. So, like, I mean, that's so crazy because some one of her kids or somebody had to bring it there, and I wouldn't want that on my conscience if I'm an asymptomatic carrier and then I go and drive to SAS and see you <laughs> and then be around you. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's just that exposure And it's just really not worth it to me on the risk. So, I mean, I've been enjoying reading. I mean, luckily, I got a nice nice place with a nice view and walk can walk and down by the things. And I'm just staying in shape and just working out and going over doing some – doing actually still doing some football stuff. And then I re-enrolled and I rolled in school and I'm taking – I'm enrolled in Columbia, so I'm doing that. Just keeping busy. Awesome. Congrats.
0: Yeah, that's one of the biggest things with me is, like, going to see my mom, you know, driving down or even taking a flight down. It's so yeah. hard with her, you know – her immune system's not there, and it, you know I know if she gets it. Then um, I don't want to be the reason my mother passes away. So that's a very hard transition to know you're going into without, because you're going to see people along the way. Either I'm driving and staying in a hotel, getting gas. Right. You're going to get exposed. And, yeah, so you don't know what's going to happen and where it's going to be at. And and then once I see her, I probably won't be able to go back and see her anymore.
1: Yeah, and then, and then the, I'm
0: gonna the be. Yeah, and if you go to the States, then you're <laughs> stuck in the States. Yeah, right now. That's the that's the thing is like that's why I'm not going yet. But Cause not- I was I'm really excited. I was I
1: was waiting for the border to open up so I can go to my house in, in Phoenix and just chill by the pool and let this thing blow over. But like the way they go the way the way the thing's going down there and the way people acting and wilding, I mean it's just it's just tough for me. Like I mean, I I was I went to the, the three rallies last week here. And, um, you know, they were, they were very peaceful protests and you got your message across and those type of things. And then the, cra- the, the, the saddest part about it is, is that you get those few bad apples that try to let the message that we're trying to come across gets hidden and gets lost in translation when you're yeah. dealing with those type of things.
0: Yeah, but you know, those people, there's people with agendas, you know, there's, there's a lot of money involved in this. I just <sighs> seen just now in LA, they just defunded the police department of $150 million and given it to the black communities.
1: And, but my question is, is so like, I, I understand that, but like, okay, so how is this money going to be dispersed? Like, it's know. one thing to say, but exactly. But like, to say, I'm giving it to the black communities, does that mean I'm putting it in the black communities by giving it to the school programs? I mean, cause we all know that the, the black schools are underfunded. We all know yep. that we, we know those and we understand those things, but, Until we have, like the biggest problem that you run into today in society right now that you're dealing with is even with people, businesses and everything is that everybody's saying they're going to do this or going to do that. But what is your plan to implement and to do that? So if I'm implementing $150 million or whatever, then how am I going to, how is this money going to really help the black community and help them get better? I think that that is what we need. We need to hear plans. We don't need to hear, it's like everybody can say I pledge x amount of dollars and i pledge x amount of yeah. dollars well technically speaking i can pledge x amount of dollars and give it to my black friend and he black and technically i've given it to the black community <laughs> <people>. he <laughs> opens a business on his own and and then i can say with a, i can say so and even even with the people speaking about you know they're speaking out about like you know racism and stuff and then you go back on their twitter feeds or you know those fans are quick to call you out on Well, six months ago, two years ago, you said this, you said this, and to watch people try to change their narrative and clean up their own images, when they really, are they really learning it or are they really just seeing that right now? Like, the key to it is going to be is when six months from now, when the dust settles on this whole thing, then who's really still moving forward and helping us pull in a direction to where we can get equality and where we don't feel like we're discriminated against and those type of things. And who's not pulling forward. And who was just selling these wolf tickets or who was just trying to get their status up or their follows up by doing this
0: and that. You see them out there too. And one of the biggest things that I notice is like, when you think of systemic racism, it's taught, but it's taught in schools and everywhere else. Like if you think about your history books, how many lies is in that history book? A we lot. celebrate Christopher Columbus for selling to America and discovering a new continent, but people are already here. Yes. Like, at what point do we stop the lies? And at what point do, does the truth start? And and I believe, I mean, honestly, I have this conversation with my wife. If I was white and I grew up where I grew up, I would 100% feel superior to black people. <laughs> I can see that, but, but I mean, you read a book and everything you read is white people discovered this, white people created this, white people invented this. Everything that is said, but it starts of white with it, people,
1: it, it starts with the it starts with the the eight crayons, Nick. <laughs> it, it starts with the crayon. If you ask any kid, and this is a study proven that if you ask any kid to pick out a crayon and say that it symbolizes something bad, they're gonna pull out the black one. Yeah, if you ask him to pick out a crayon to symbolize something good, it's going to be the white one. Yeah. I mean, you refer to darkness as something negative and you refer to light as something positive. That's just been ingrained in us since we were, what, three or
0: four years black old? Black sheep, black eyes, <laughs> black swan, black market. Everything associated with the word black is bad. But, see, right. that is, like, taught over time, and people don't understand that. But when you look at the schooling system... They can't just change the the books like that, or can they? And if they do well, why, why then that starts, you? but that's but that's where it's gotta start. Because you're you're creating a system to where there's no education of black people. There's no, and I mean a lot of it was stolen. You know, a lot of the inventions and they came up with the patent and they said, Okay, well, if you don't have money for a patent, then it was taken from them. Yes. Right? So at this point. There's a lot of names on patents that don't that shouldn't be there, and how do we really have this conversation of equality when it's still going to be taught superiority well the, and I and I totally get what you're saying, but only
1: I disagree in one point of like yeah, it is taught, but for me, I think it starts at home yeah because. Like you, you have to think about it if you have a kid in North Dakota or something and his parents and his uncles, they drop the N-word loosely all the time. That's what it's it's almost like then that, that education of where he's exposed to and what they're exposed to. He doesn't know that that's a bad word in, in, in that point in time when he's five, six, and seven until he gets to eleven and twelve. And then sometimes they don't even see black people until outside of high school at yeah. that point in those small rural towns. And I, that's the issue that, that I was talking about earlier. Like, if, if, are they going to be, are we really going to have a change or are we still going to sell the wolf tickets? Because like, if like, for example, the the alumni from Navy got, uh, did a phone call Like, it was on Daily Mail today, the um, alumni that's an alumni board for the Navy Academy and Navy had his phone on and, and went live and was talking to his wife and dropped the n-word 20 times and she talking about and it was crazy and then he deleted then he was like apologized and said you know i have to think about my growth as a person he's 67 years old that that's been that's been that's how he really feels but imagine like he's imagine how many african-american and black people that he's shook hands with and all the while dropping the n-word under their breath and it's almost like you just want to be used like we were back in the day to, to the benefit and then move on and move forward for people. In the, and and that's, what's bothersome is like, even the guy from, um, what's the CrossFit? Like, I mean, yeah. just these, just these crazy comments coming out and you're like, you really, you really thinking this to when you're in your 140 characters, you really thought about this is the best you could come up with in this situation and this circumstances. So yeah. like, this is really showing a lot of people get to mask their hatred for blacks or whoever right now but a lot of people are showing their true colors or how they really feel whether it's about black whites uh gays like it's it doesn't discrimination is discrimination yeah and i think that it's all the is that that is the toughest part that we're dealing with right now
0: yeah it's it's like you said it's the overall discrimination i don't care if you're black white Asian, if you're if you're gay or transgender or male or female, Correct. there's there's a lot of um, a lot of that that goes on. You think they just apologize because of business?
1: Yes, a hundred percent. And the reason and the reason that businesses are cutting quickly, like I mean, even the what was the the chick from Glee or whatever, the chick from whatever, like she was with HelloFresh and they said that she was a bully and said that she would you know, defecating somebody's wig, their co-stars, she got dropped from Hello Fresh, like right then. So companies are so on edge because the and that's what the black people will have to understand that we have buying power. Like yes. like we have to understand that that we have buying power. So we're marching in the companies that we don't feel like supporting our movement, we need to actively boycott those companies to make them understand and feel that our money is green too and it spins. And that, and until you hit home with those. But then you also listen and look at the companies like this. Think about it from this perspective. I'm going to take it one level because I've thought about it because my mom and I (laughs) were having this deep discussion earlier. Think about this. All these companies are cutting ties. How many are African-American executives do they have? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. Like you're talking about equality and you're talking about Black Lives Matter. But we look at your executive board and it's, Fifty to ages from fifty to sixty, and they're all white. Then,
0: yeah.
1: how does how can you even relate to it if you don't even have nobody in the board meeting that can actually bring the issues or bring the the red flags where you're talking about a marketing plan or an advertising campaign? Where if you have an African American in there, he can be like, "Whoa, this ain't cool." Like, this ain't gonna happen. Yeah, this, this ain't gonna happen. This is gonna get blowed back. Now, this is gonna be a bad blowback. I mean, you think about it. If CrossFit had a board where they, they, where they could bounce it off of. So, I mean, I think it needs for all these people and all these companies that are saying this, but like, again, how do you implement it? Like, I mean, you have the Rooney rule in NFL. I mean, we're going to eventually get to football. Anyway, you have the Rooney rule in NFL. If we've been talking about unfair hiring and firing of African American head coaches or coaches in general for years, and yeah. it's still, and it was still in the forefront. I mean, Stephen A. Give him credit; he brings it up every year. Every year, when there's five or six job open, and you get a quality control guy who was only a receiver coach for one year, and gets to be a head coach, <laughs> and, and and then you got guys who've been coordinators for 20 years, never get an opportunity. You have you have to bring that to the forefront. And why do you think they had to amend the Rooney Rule? The reason they had to amend the rule is because clearly. The way the rule was established, I mean, if it wasn't racism, and that was one of the most ridiculous statements I've ever heard from a coach when he said that there's no racism and he's never experienced it and if the life could be like a football locker room. I mean, I remember in the football locker room, it's still haves and have-nots. And it's still the guys on the bubble and it's still the guys are not on the bubble. And it's still, I mean, he's right. The locker room does imitate life and there is discrimination in that locker room. So for him to even fix his mouth and to come out and say that, when you think about when he was up for his job and there were other qualified African-Americans, then how can you make make that change or how can you make those comments when you're saying it that way? I mean, and don't get me wrong, I can understand what he was trying to say. And I find that a lot of things, a lot of this happens to a lot of people right now because they're trying to say the right things and they're trying to be politically correct and they're trying to you know, say the right things, but then it's like, no matter what you say, you're going to get judged either way. Yeah. Like I myself, I haven't posted anything on Twitter about black lives matter. Does that mean I don't support the movement? I've donated money. I mean, I've donated money. I've, I've been in the rallies here in Calgary. You know, I mean, I've, I've done my part. I'm, I'm working with the black uh, Calgary chapter uh, Calgary black chamber that just got started up here. And, so like i I'm, I'm doing my part, but I don't really feel like it's necessary for me to post all this on social media because then you you're you're not judged on your merits of what you're doing in your heart, you're judged on the hundred and forty characters
0: yeah, and go back I'm just going to go back and touch on the Rooney rule. I don't think two interviewing two now is going to help either. I think like look at Jerry Jones last year. you know Jerry personally and you and everybody that I know that knows Jerry personally has hot things to say about Jerry Jones. I do too. Jerry Jones interviewed two head coaches. Marvin Lewis and um whoever they got now. But
1: you then hold, hold up. That's
0: your team and you, you know the head coaches? Man, look, too much going on. I mean, just, don't be blame, Don't be <laughs> blaming on McCarthy, this. McCarthy, Mike McCarthy. So, yes. So my thing is this, I believe Jerry Jones had in mind he wanted Mike McCarthy, but could not hire Mike McCarthy. So had to, he had to hire, I mean, interview a black head coach. So for him to bring in Marvin Lewis, a respected head coach, former head coach in the, in the NFL, just to interview him for due process with no intention to ever thinking about hiring him, That's the thing, like... Well, you got it, but wait, wait. Only rebuttal,
1: devil's advocate. The other side of the coin is, yeah, Jerry had his guy, and I'm not defending him or anything like that. I mean, I personally, I'll get into what I feel about the Rooney Rule in a second about what you said, but what happens if Mike McCarthy takes the Chargers job because it's more appealing, even though he was in the Dallas gig and they couldn't get the deal done, then it becomes, then it's Marvin Lewis's job. So I get the fact of the point of the interview, but I the problem that I have with the rule is that it's just like you interview the two to interview the two, and now here comes my three candidates that I want. The point of the rule is, is to, to have fair, deserving candidates get a fair shot. But you're never going to get a fair shot until you affect the upper management of the NFL. And that is, that is the owners, vice presidents, presidents, when they become African-Americans, then you will see a tide shift, and then you will see a change and, and evolution in the hiring process. I mean, you're probably going to see a, fa- a phase, honestly, after this year. God, I hope that this, the season, both, both leagues are be able to play football. This year when kids, kids get fired because of the black last minor, and it's sad to say, but that'll, they'll, they'll probably be hot right now. So if it's eight openings, you might see six African-American head coaches. But I think, and then do you equate that to the fairness of them being well deserving of their job? Or do you equate that to be because of the Black Lives Matter movement and such and such and such and such? And such? Is that why they have those jobs? I mean, so it's one of those where you're, you it's such a balancing act and you really won't know anybody's intentions because it's so hard to tell because you got to think, you and I are very familiar with dealing with, Ownership and seeing mm-hmm. it, they they see it their way. I mean, we've yeah, seen that right, as right. players. I mean, you've I've, I've witnessed you know your dealings with ownership and being told one thing and things happen in different ways. And I, vice versa, have just you know we've just dealt with it personally on being preconceived one way and things going exactly how you discussed exactly if, if your plan. If you're if you put a plan together to be ready for year two, just like you wanted to, and you discuss your Two or three year plan, then that's what you assume that you're gonna do. But when you're like I say all the time, when your name's on the front of the check and you sign on the back, you know, you get you got to do what the man on the front says. And it's tough. Like, think about this. How can you tell a guy worth $2 billion, Jerry Jones, $3 billion, or whatever he's worth, to say, I know you own this company, I know you brought it for X amount of million, but I want you to hire this. Name any successful businessman that never that's hired somebody else that, that they didn't want to hire.
0: Yeah. I
1: mean they've got and you gotta look at the egos and all these guys are successful businessmen. They're one percent of the one percent. So they don't get that part. way by they don't get that way by being um you know passive. <laughs> they get that by being cutthroat, ruthless, conniving, manipulative, and all those things. That doesn't cut off when you buy a football team. Yeah, like it doesn't <laughs> It doesn't go off at all, so you're still dealing with those things.
0: Yeah, that's so true. You spoke about Sally, man. How's Sally doing?
1: Uh she's good, actually. She um, she's uh, making uh, someone mask, and um, you know, she's high risk as well because she's got you know, yep. she checks all the boxes: fat, black, diabetic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> you might you might have to ble- you might have to beat that beat that fat part out because she gonna get me. Put the uh, chant. Man, uh,
0: put the chant. Put the chant on the mask.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, but no, she's actually good. Um, she's uh, she's um, remodeling, doing some things around the house. Like My uncle's helping her remodel some things there. And uh, she's been sewing masks. She makes a wool mask like she's been, you know, she was sewing before we were born. So we were like she can do anything with a sewing machine. So uh, she's been uh, sewing masks and, and those type of things. We donated some masks and stuff to the hospital at home and We just, you know, trying to give back where we're fortunate and blessed in our situation and those type of things, and where we're able to give back. I mean, because any little bit counts, and, you know, we're able to try to do our part and just try to, you know, it's all about your footprint and whether you can grow it one way or another and you just continue to build it. But she's enjoying life. I mean, she can't complain. She's very mad because she's pissed because the borders are closed. She's like, I've been to Canada three times by now. (laughs) So that's her only thing. Like, she... And then we miss family vacation, Like, we used to go to the beach. Yeah. Or the camp. You know, we used to go there to that. Myrtle Beach. Days. Myrtle Beach, yeah. Yeah. And uh, she she missed that. So, you know, she missing that. So she kind of needs some her time. So she wants to, like, just she said she's going to go and just rent her Airbnb and get away for a weekend and just cut her phone off and blah, blah, blah. She's been running ragged with the stuff I needed to do for my businesses at home and then trying to make masks and then. She does have my 15-year-old nephew at home, and that in itself is <laughs> killing her because he can't do nothing but be at the house, so. Hey, They'd be bored. Oh, yeah, but I was able to make him, uh, on the patio outside, I made him talk him through, making him a little, some little boxes, some agility boxes and things like that. That's good. So hopefully it's a little chunky booty get out there and start doing some <laughs> workouts, because, I mean, I was like, you got the man boobs. You better get in that gym, buddy. <laughs>
0: Uh, no matter how big I got, I ain't never had no man booze.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's true. That's because it goes right <laughs> to your belly.
0: <laughs> well, let's start. When you were that age, when you were growing up in Martinsville, man, um, when did you really get into football? And when did you really know that you wanted to be – that you wanted sports to be the rest of your life? My life,
1: my life changed when I was 14. I was – um because when I was in junior high, I played all the junior varsity sports. I used to bust to the high school and play all sports. So then when I got to high school at thirteen, at 14, that's when we had a new coaching change in the new regime. And I would uh, God shine down on me because it was uh, Coach Bobby Martin came in. He went to Virginia Tech. Um, old school guy. Like, I remember he, old school. Like, he didn't like no earrings, no tattoos. Like, you know what I mean? The pants is going to be up. He you you he wants you to go to church like he was one of those, and his objective was to get get to help get black man from this you know to get a scholarship to have a better life, and I never forget it because I was just a sophomore at that time or sophomore, and I tricked off my whole freshman year you know what I mean because I was starting varsity like I was all, I was all second team all state as a freshman so you know I was walking around you already know. You walk around like, like, like. Oh, this you know got to be a breeze. Yeah, like I'm like, this is what life's about? What? And then, but I never went to school. Like I had all D's. I had like a few C's. And then he came in. He was like, I never really because. And this is another thing. Like we we're talking about the education. Like the courses. Like I never had a guidance counselor talk to me when I was when I was a freshman in high school about college and these are the courses you need to take in college. But not until he came and because he had already went to college on a full football scholarship that he was like, "Okay, well, you can go to college. He said you can go to a big school. The worst case scenario, your athleticism can get you a D1 AA or D2 scholarship. And that's when he my life changed because he was like an old school guy. He he cut lumber and stuff. So if we wanted stuff for school because my grandparents didn't have it or whatever the case may be. We would go cut lumber in the morning and we cut lumber on the weekends to like buy those jays 150 I cut lumber for three days I get them jays so like whatever we wanted, but what that taught me was the value of hard work. and if we weren't cutting three or four days a week we had we're at to school at six o'clock in the morning. so like yeah. when I got to college and I was doing those winter workouts, that's what we were that's what I was known for so like I can say that he groomed me and prepared me for that second career and I owe him a lot because we had to go see the guidance counselor to redo my grades so I can be up, you know, to redo my classes and start taking college credit courses and those type of things where I wouldn't have had a clue about it. And I mean, he's probably helped in the, in the 20 years, at least 250 kids, you know, continue to education. And you don't hear about, you know, you don't hear about those. And yeah, he's had some run-ins because he's old school. So like, He's really like, he's got up in kids' faces. He's never put his hand on kids, but he's got up in their faces. Because it's, I'm an old school guy, I believe that too. Like life, I tell my mom this all the time, life is not gonna baby anybody. And these millennials and the parents nowadays are babying their kids and then when they get smacked by the real world, you wonder why the suicide rate is so high is because nobody's teaching people how to deal with adversity, setbacks. You know, everybody I mean, you think about, like, even when we got fired, like, everybody when we got fired, our phones were blowing up like we were, like, we had cancer or we was dying or something. Yeah. And it's, like, it's just a job in in the grand scheme of things. I mean, we can find other jobs, and we can always do that. But and just to – And I just want to just, just just say, that,
0: man, I just want to say, you got fired. My contract ran out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. Staff's contract was not renewed, <laughs> and those <coach> got fired. <laughs> oh, you're so stupid.
0: Who Who was your favorite players growing up? Like, who did you watch, and that really motivated you to go out? Well, my my here?
1: my dad, my grandpa, he loved their dead skins.
0: So we used to we used to shoot up because it's like four and
1: a half four hours, so we shoot up, check out a game at the old stadium. It was cool. It was fun. I mean. I was, a, I, was a, I was an athlete growing up, so, like, I was a running back in high school. And so, like, I would, I always liked to cast the score, the touchdowns and stuff. Like, I didn't want to play defense. Like, I had, I had like, 40-some defensive scholarships, and I only had, like, five offensive <laughs> scholarships. But I was an all-state running back and led the conference in receptions and all this other stuff. I used a lot of receiver in cats, and I got the DVD. Anytime y'all want to see it, it was DVD, VHS, but VHS, I had to convert
0: Okay, okay. I had to convert
1: it over, man. You, you know, I had to get my, You know what I mean? Next thing I'm gonna put it on a the USB, then I'm good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but Ma- yeah. what, Mama? Uh, Eagles fan? Oh, my mom is a diehard Eagles fan. Like so. So dad's diehard. a Redskins
1: fan. Mom's an Eagles fan. And then my other, and then my other uncle is they like the NFC. They're like the NFC East because my other uncle's a Dallas Cowboy fan. Like they like it. It always stays there. Plenty <laughs> stories speaking of Dallas and um, speaking of Dallas and Eagles. So I'm playing for the Cowboys. Bill Parcells, the head coach. We're playing in Philly, and so my mom, like I said, is a diehard Eagles fan. So she um, had on the Clay Brooks Cowboys jersey, but she had on the Eagles headband, Eagles black eye black, Eagles wristband, Eagles wind pants, Eagles everything else. I don't know this at the time, I'm playing the game. So I said, again, I see my mom in the little, you know, where you meet your parents at, meet your yeah. family at. I see it with like six police escorts, like it's six police escorting them. And you and I both know Sally off the chain. So I'm like, yeah. what in the hell does she do now? <laughs> Lo and behold, she comes up to me, baby, they tried to throw me out the stands. I am well, She <laughs> said, well, the Eagles fans was like, hey, 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 you can't be this way. You can't be, you can't start a defense. You gotta be the Eagles or the Cowboys. And my mom goes, well, this is my son, and the rest of this is all me. And they was like, you got to get up <laughs> out of here with this. And try to throw out. And she had to get a police escort. I mean, they had to have a jail. Everybody had a jail in, in Philly, right?
0: They used to have that jail in the
1: basement down there. Yeah, I know. At the, at, at the uh, Vet, the Veteran Memorial Stadium. Yep. The last game they played in that, we blew it up. And I say <laughs> we as in the Bucks.
0: Hey, man, look, that turf.
1: O two, O two, O two. We uh in 02 we blew that thing up in 01, it was 01 because 02 Super Bowl, no one because we were saying that we blowing up the event. <laughs> and after the game, after the game, we we're on the bus, dude. And I don't know where they got all these eggs from, but this is how crazy Philly fans is. After the game, we won, we celebrate, we're on the bus, about to get on the charter to go back to Tampa. Man, they they were throwing eggs at the bus and everything, and the cops just sitting there looking laughing. I was like, where did he get all his ends? The game just over.
0: <laughs> they yeah, ran you know through the car waiting for y'all to get out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that was fun though.
0: How'd you what get to ECU? Player,
1: oh,
0: my favorite player? Mike Orvin, no doubt. The original <sighs> hey, no. playmaker. You know what though? Here's the thing. Here's well, the the best in cowboy history? Mike Orvin. Mike
1: Orvin. Can you stop making you can't make it, you, you gotta be, you can't make a serious face when you say that.
0: No, okay, so this is my influence, right? So Michael Urban was the heart and soul of the Cowboys. Emmitt Smith was uber-talented. Troy Eggman did his thing. Jay Novacek, Alvin Harper, they had a defense that was dominant. But when you look, when Michael Urban was involved, he what? made you, everything you missed, work.
1: No, you missed, you missed the key point. Dude, so Daryl Johnson? No, you, not the Moose. Man, look. I played with Larry Allen. I seen him bench press oh, 550. Well, we talked. That old line I, was the I, best I seen, I seen I seen L.A. bench 500, and some with his knees up with a big big dip in and take Marcellus Wiley's money. Like, I witnessed that. <laughs>
0: like, you I know, witnessed Larry Allen, Mark two and like eight, You
1: named all them skill
0: players just like a skill player. Larry Allen, Mark two and A, Mark Stepnowski, Eric Williams, Larry Allen. Those boys, Al- Al- those Chelsea, boys those work. Mark 2 and A, man, look, hey, yeah, they they did what they're supposed to do, man. Um, great team overall, but you would just see Michael Ever make big play after big play, and he'd check Troy ass sometimes, be like, get me the ball. And Troy yeah. told he made the play, the original playmaker, man, and that's just the way the style of play he played with allowed me to go. It, out reminds, it
1: reminds you, it re, he does. Re, he does. He does, I can see the, I can Eagles, see the, the-
0: Eagles got Bobby Taylor because of Mike Orvin. They were like, man, we need a big DB. Because Mike Werbin killing these small, Mike Irvin didn't run up and just pat you when you blocked. Yeah, but they also let you be
1: physical. Yes, so he was- Okay, he was so head. who's the most underrated cowboy of all time, in your opinion? Ooh, that's that's tough. Man, he underrated. can't be in the Hall of Fame because that would be he would be rated good if he's in the Hall of Fame. Tony Romo. Yeah, okay. let me let me ask you a question on your own show, punk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Tony Romo is underrated, man. There they go. Now look, how many times have we had this argument as roommates? <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, Tony Romo is so underrated. Think about this. The numbers he put up. He never had a top 15 defense. He had a – the best defense he had, they went 13-3. and three. The and then only time he threw
1: – Didn't they lose because he dropped the, the extra point?
0: Yeah. But the only oh, yeah. time – The so, only like, time I mean, he would throw picks at the end of games, if he don't drop the extra
1: point, they win game. The, the only game, time like,
0: that uh, he threw picks at the end of games were on O-line blocking scheme breakdowns letting the guy come free up the middle. He throws a hot route. Um, the Eagles, he's throwing a swing pass the whole game. I'm like, man, he's got to throw the swing pass. Nobody's peeling with the back. And the one play, Brandon Graham, I think, was peel with the back. Yep. And he got the pick. That. Like, it was just a hell of a play by a defensive end. But yeah. the whole game, they never peel with the back. But you ever think was... that
1: Romo should have won more?
0: I think if he had a better defense. I, and I think defense would – see, this is the problem I have. Defense wins championships. That's what I heard from the first time I played the game, and now it's quarterbacks. Win. No, quarterbacks don't want no damn championships. Trent Dilford go hand the ball off and win a championship. Defense wins championships. You can't change the narrative now because quarterbacks get paid more money. Now, quarterbacks they, always
1: got paid more money.
0: But that's what I'm saying. So now you can't just say, oh, well, the defense don't matter. When the number well, one well, like, defense,
1: this, this this is, this is what the the the, the 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 mindset is this. Okay, defense, you, you don't need a quarterback to win the game. You need a quarterback to manage the game. You need yes. to win the game 100%. as a team. That's true. But what you do need from your quarterback, if I do need that second and 10 or that second and 15 to get me in third and six or third manageable, I need that quarterback to be able to make those throws. Yeah. Now, I was Romo's teammate. So, I know he can make all his throws, and I know that the play Players in the locker room, the guys in the locker room respected him. I mean, I, I personally just think it's just one of those where he just, it just didn't work. I yeah. mean, it isn't, you know, it wasn't any knock on him. I mean, it was plenty of time and plenty of situations where a plate, uh, you know, even he, he don't drop a snap and they, they kick the extra point, they win that game. And yeah. now is his legacy totally different because they could go on and win. They were they were pretty good that year too because it was a home game. Dealing and, with early
0: Dez, Dez running the yeah. wrong routes. Dez not running yeah. a dig route, runs a post. Tony throws it, pig. You're, you're you know, speaking like a true cowboy. But no, I speak it like uh, I know the game, Cowboys fan. I'm not. No, a, you don't. I'm not Look, speaking it as no. How many
1: times we've had a discussion where you and I, no matter what, you slammed it to the Cowboys. I'm a slant. Like you're like a reporter. you like a reporter <laughs> that got. You're like a reporter that got
0: a favorite player. A referee once told me I was his favorite player, and I was like, Well, you, you damn sure don't throw no flags for me. Well, that's true because you know, CFL, all these refs live in these cities and stuff, and I mean, yeah, they like you. Yeah, I was always good with the refs, I was always good with the refs.
1: I know you were always good with the refs, so that was about it. <laughs> Cause you know, I look as fat as you was. I was like, "Do you ever get tired of talking? Like, how you just ran and you fat and you still talking? <laughs> like, where is you breathing?"
0: I used to oh. push it out. I used to push out my stomach to get more air.
1: Now nah, that jersey was just so tight, you had to suck it in.
0: Ain't no sucking in at yes. that, no. <laughs> The other roommate, let's talk about him when he got to East Carolina. Who Stokes? Yeah. <laughs> hey,
1: funny story. <laughs> Stokes get Stokes get to East Carolina, man. He didn't like to lift weights, but like, he hated lifting weights. Like they used to have to make the GA follow Stokes around. And like I, I used to hate it because Stokes was in our class. He got put in our class. And then when he got put in our class, we was like, man. This little, this little, man, he don't even want to do nothing. Like, I mean, he, because we never know because he came in in January, right?
0: He so said like, he was he like did, 160.
1: Yeah, he was like 160. Like, he still didn't have no abs, though. That's the worst part. Like, he went, he like he still, he still had the pose like, he never had no abs. Never. <laughs> like, ever, ever. And then, like, he never, like, so, like, he became under a microscope. And then you can't really tell in spring ball what somebody can do, but he was routing them up. But I tell you what, that first damn game of the regular season, the first punt, sixty-five out the gate, and after that it was over. He had the like swinging. That one on, but that one on doing like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he he worked like, and then that, and that's the craziest part because he's like he would work hard on the field, agility drills, any of that stuff. When you got in that weight room though. No? Damn, weight room was no like he was not like, like he hated literally like to the umpteen power. But I mean, he carved out a good pro career. I mean, shoot, he should be, he should definitely be in the CFL Hall of Fame as a return.
0: Yeah, I think so too, especially what he did for how long he did it too.
1: Yeah, I mean, and then he's the only person I know that came off the couch three years in a row to get one to the crib at some point. And one yeah. time he had two and getting off the couch. <laughs> So, yeah. like, I mean, you get off the couch mid to the end of the season, you still come in as an injury replacement and still be able to carve them up. And that means you kind of – you really know what you're doing in that aspect.
0: How was your career at East Carolina? Was you the uh, man? It was good.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, it was good. I loved it. I mean, I was a three-year starter. I didn't start as a freshman, but I started as a sophomore, junior, and a senior. Um, you know, had good numbers. My last year, I think I finished with over – five or six sacks as a D-tackle. I mean, I had always had four or five as a D-tackle. But, I mean, it was one of those where you you were, like, at that point in time, because I came out at, like, 290, two and so it really wasn't a lot of teams and choices because I actually when I came out of college, I actually went to um, New York, and then I fell in my physical with New York. And then Green Bay picked me right up, and then I flew from New York to Green Bay. And then I played the whole preseason to Green Bay, and I loved it. The preseason was lit because I had Gilbert Brown and Santana Dotson. They two mm. old vets, so they weren't taking no reps. <laughs> so, like, I got to, like, play and start in preseason games and had, like, four, four sacks in the preseason. So, I was like, I knew I was going to make the team. And that's when you learn about the politics. That's <laughs> it. No matter what, they had me. In. And then they still tried to cut me and put me on a PR. And then I uh, got hurt in, like, last, um, uh, last week of preseason or something. And then Tampa took me off the, the practice roster from Green Bay. And I was just down there. And it was – that's when I really learned how to really play football because, like, Sap, a lot of people think that, you know, Warren is, like, a goofy goofball. But he's probably one of the most um, high football IQ people I've ever been around. And he knows the game. Like, I mean, he can take – like, and that's what – that was cool because, like, it was my second year – second year. And so he was, like, my first and second year in the league was in, with him. And it was, like, he taught me how to be a pro. And it's crazy yeah. because like he would, we would be. He would want us there. Everything started at eight. We'd be there at six thirty. We'd be on the field by seven doing hand drills before the eight o'clock meetings or breakfast. Then we're doing hand drills and we're doing drills after practice. But then after that, now we're going to get it in. So we're going to dinner. We might come back to the facility at four o'clock in the morning and sleep there for the next three or four hours. <laughs> but you rinse and repeat, and he showed me how that you could be successful on the field and enjoy your life off the field and put your time in. And he he showed you how to learn what the back end doing because if you know what the linebackers and you know what the DBs doing now as a front guy I know when I can take a chance because I know I got support here now if yeah. I know we're playing cover two man I better stay I better hold contain and keep my keep my contain because they running everybody off just little things like that that you really don't think of because you growing up in college all you listen is front what game running now I'm doing it like you ain't really paying attention to coverage aspect or any of that. And then once you learn that and evolve the game, I mean, it's just like a receiver learning how, learning to run holes and stuff like that. So you know, fake, because if you're the three receiver and they're faking on your side, you should be the first hot read off that just by natural. So just knowing where to play fake coming to and that type of thing, you know, if you're the three receiver and the play fakes opposite, then you know, you just decoy. (laughs) because You're going to get the ball. Mm -hmm. So just things like that where he was able to, you know, and evolve and and like spend time with a young guy and like put time in because it was like myself, Ron Warner, and Ellis Williams, and we were three young cats. And like they, they like him, Sam, Booger, like they, them cats took, took us on the wing. Greg, like the great Spires, they, they like took us all under their wing. And like, because that that was probably one of the tight knit groups. That's why, like, when I came to Canada, I always would have D line nights because that's where I got it from. Like, percent.
0: Have
1: like that, those things together, like, we were all always together I was playing the game. I think back then that Tiger Woods was jumping. So we used to play that Tiger Woods hit the ball and turn yeah. red, red, red.
0: that Tiger yep. Woods <laughs> 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 try to get that like power that. up.
1: <laughs> yeah, that power up. We used to play that for drill. And um but no like I mean that he was a great influence. And then I have to say Coach Huff was a great influence to give me my first coaching gig. I mean I had coached in NFL Europe and the intern and worked in their scouting department so I kinda knew that I wanted to get into it. And then I tried to, when I got to here as the old head in Calgary, I tried to mimic what I seen the old guys do to me and try to help the young guys, whether it was like Mace and, you know, E. Hughes and those guys, try to help those guys and try to help those guys grow. And Coach, I've seen something in me and was able to say, well, I think you, you got what it takes to coach and able to give me a job and then help me groom that job through trial and errors and then let me sink and swim on my own knots so much as taking it but also allowing me to, fail and take those steps and then teaching me so that you can learn yeah. and you can grow I mean I can ask for a better organization and things like that as far as those structures and even then transitioning into Dave before I left you know it's a great experience and like I'm real tight with the guy now I mean I still call and talk to him all the time and that type yeah. of thing it's really like when they say football is family it's really true and that's the best part about this issue and the things that we're dealing with night right now you can set everything aside and we can hold hands as brothers against one cause and one common goal. And as long as we can do that, I think we'll be fine and we'll be heading in the right direction.
0: Yeah. Dude, Sap is – Sap is an animal, man. You know, you – you, you got to get lucky to get with guys like that because there's a lot of guys that don't.
1: There's a oh, lot 100%. of guys
0: that don't take the time to help you because they're like, I'm not going to help you take my job or I'm not going to yep. help you live your career – you know. he, but
1: he was, but you know, he could be, but like, Sap was like you in this aspect. Cause he was like, ain't nobody going to beat me anyway. Yeah. So I mean, I, like, if that's your mindset and that's what you think. Like, I mean, he's still, he like, if you, t- if I was to text Sap right now and say, you could get five, you could get five in this league today. I bet he texted me back in all caps. Hell yeah. Like hey, I mean, you telling, telling me that you can't get, you can't get 110 catches. Dude, I tell you like this. Oh, oh my God! I'm 100 percent serious. I'm 100 percent
0: serious right now. If like Milk made a joke that he coming back at 50, then G Roy had a little video where he's running talking about he getting ready to come back and Milk come back. I said at 40, I'll come back and I'll get a thousand.
1: I believe that, but and I need mean, you to have.
0: I'm gonna need 100 have, catches, have
1: 120 catches. For <laughs> I'm gonna need 100 catches, but I'm gonna get a thousand. I don't know, because you nah, because you're gonna catch you gonna catch at least two young BB slipping a game where they think they can hit you high. You're gonna get you gonna get above your little 10-yard average.
0: But see, if I if I even thought about coming back for real, I wouldn't come back over 230.
1: Well, I mean, that would be in itself an achievement miracle considering that you're um a four-star d tackle <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, but I mean, if I, if I made my mind up, like, look, this is what we're going to do, because I feel, I feel good body-wise. And I'm just like, you see me jump over Stokes' head last year. I still can jump. So if I, if I really w- decided to do it, I would get down to under 230. Again. <laughs> but yeah, I had to give up drinking. I had to give up drinking. And if I gave up drinking for a year, then the commitment would automatically be there. Hey uh, uh, Nick,
1: you, if you give up drinking for a year, hey man, I'm sure we can. I'm sure we can. We can do a pool of. I, mean, I can put this in eight group chats right now. And Nick said he's about to give up drinking for a year. come back in forty. You, how 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 much do you think my stuff is gonna be like? Bling 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 bling. Everybody gonna want some of that action. <laughs>
0: Jared's gonna be the first one. Like, I gotta oh, have it on.
1: 100%. I gotta have it on. Yeah. Well, first off, you ain't. First off, have you got, have you drunk all the crown that's at your house for your birthday?
0: No. Three so bottles. You ain't off. gonna make
1: it. Because you're gonna drink all that. You're gonna be like, I ain't starting until this is over.
0: I mean, I'm not even 39 yet to come back at 40. <laughs> oh, so you say you got a while? I got, I got two years. I'm gonna need two years now. Oh, I just turned 38. You got I just turned 38, so you know, I, if I come back, it'll it'll start next year. I'm not coming back.
1: 100%. I have no de-
0: I have no desire to play anymore. But well, yeah, I, I mean, like but like at the end of the day, like
1: well, that's what I was gonna say. Like, what is there you've got? It's not like, you, like, for example, if you were 10 10 receiving yard shards and stuff, or that or that. Like, I mean, but still, who gonna come back for a whole year of pounding for 10
0: yards, like? Like, I mean,
1: you have nothing to prove. You got a Hall of Fame career. Like, what else is there
0: left? Well, if I go in the Hall of Fame next year, the first ballot, then I could come back be the first Hall of Famer to have a 1,000 yards after he was already in the Hall of Fame.
1: Man, look, is you on 5 <laughs> over there? I'm
0: like with you. I've been in the house for four months. <laughs>
1: Golly.
0: <laughs> no.
1: I mean, I got me a beach. I got me a mountain bike. I'm ready.
0: Man, I got me a cruiser, man. I, I ain't mountain biking. I cruise.
1: Well, I mean, I'm not gonna mountain bike. I have a mountain bike. I'm not I'm not going in no mountains with no bike. I mean, I'm <laughs> on the paved joint right here by the zoo. Got my music on. It, it got me and put me three nudes in a water bottle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he drinking drinking nudes while while riding. That's funny. Yeah,
1: I mean it's zero sugar. I gotta keep my diabetic stuff up, and I'm exercising, so I'm doing two pluses.
0: Yeah, that is that's that's good. But look, check this out though.
1: So you know I got that big hill in Bridgeland right there. To mm-hmm. go down, nah, 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 nah. I go around to the science center, come around <laughs> all the way around. I ain't going in the hill, man.
0: No, and that's I go a big back hill. Back
1: around the other way.
0: Mm-hmm. That that'll be that'll make your back hurt.
1: My back hurt anyway, man. What you mean? This is D. How do you feel after your career? You know they tell you if you play if you play, huh? How do you feel after your career? Oh, I feel great, except every so often, like I'll get like uh, like some some pain in my like my knees and stuff. Like everything will stiffen up on me. It won't. It doesn't have that. I'll probably happen two or three times a year. Yeah. But I already got the doctor. Was like, yes, yeah, they are early signs. <laughs> but like, I mean, like, like for me, I love football because I really feel like I didn't have anything else to prove. And then I had a great opportunity to be right into a position coach. Yeah. So, like, it was – like, I could have played for another two years, but why am I going to play for another two years when this opportunity ain't going to be there in two years? So, like, I kind of cut my career short in that aspect because of the opportunity that was presented itself in that aspect. So, that's what – that's kind of what I did. But, I mean, you take Charleston, for example. I mean, he's still chugging along. I mean, it just goes to show you that athleticism and skill set has – a something to do with it, but once you learn your craft and you learn the techniques, then you can still be successful. However, just like, you know, the little nuances where you're doing, um, doing a little chicken wing to separate. Yep. You know you only need six inches to separate. That's you it. know you're going to go snack the ball. Just look at that. Charleston knows he can set him up high and counter back low and those type of things. And I think that's probably the most rewarding thing as, like, a coach and you can relate to this, is when you see a player that couldn't do some stuff, then you teach it, you group it, and then all you see him do it in the game and you feel like a proud parent.
0: Yeah, because you had some guys down there, man. Like, even when you were playing, like, you were working with Tom Johnson and, and other guys like that and Charleston, and and then once you became a coach, and even tw- in 12, um, who was the guys? It was Charleston. Michael Lemon, Cordero. Yeah, Cordero. It was Cordero
1: and Lemon right then.
0: Yeah, and then after that. Austin was
1: hurting in 12.
0: Yeah, and then after that, yeah, I mean, but you, know, you just kept building. You kept building guys. Well, it, well, like,
1: the, but the thing about it is, is why I love defense so much, and I think this is different in offense, because offense, as a skilled position player, you got to have the ball. Like, yeah. you have to. In order to be successful, a running back has to have the ball. I mean, he has blocking those, you know, he blocks, but the receiver, yeah, they block, but they're going to be noticed for having the ball. On defense, yeah. you can affect every play anytime. You want to, especially the D line. I mean, like even if they run away from you, they can run away from you, and I can still hustle, and you they make them cut it back, and I still get the tackle.
0: Yeah, you know what I
1: mean, so like I mean, it's unlike unlike any other aspect of football. It's on the offensive side of the ball, the defense side of the ball, the defense. I can kind of dictate. Yeah, DB, you gotta have you know the ball's gotta be thrown your way, but anywhere else on the field, whether you're linebacker or linebacker or D line, it all technique comes into play, and I think that that's one of the the best things that you like is you take these raw athletes and you get these kids and they're like just raw talented and like if they trust you a little bit like my saying the same move that got you here is probably the same move that's gonna get you home because if you don't learn to put more tools in your tool belt then you're gonna be in the same spot you're not getting any better so yeah. i mean they have to trust you to be able to try those new moves and try to understand and then you got to make sure you teach them and you coach them on the different levels the auditory visual Walkthroughs and things like that, and hit their learning points, and that's the thing that we, you know, you and I were discussing with your position group last year about, you know, you got to understand the different players relate to different things. That's why you got to cover the whole umbrella, so you're making sure that you're getting everything and you're touching what they need to do.
0: Yeah, I was just sitting here thinking, like, if you had a CFL D line, everybody you coached to play with, who's your top four? Two D ends, two D tackles. I
1: mean, I got to say,
0: play with. Played with a coach. coach. Uh, Bowman and Charleston. D-N. John Bowman and Charleston is DNs. Who's Duke D-Tackles?
1: I mean, you still got to do – Michael's a load. Micah Johnson. Mm-hmm. Micah's, Micah's a real load. And then, like, I'm just talking about CFL-wise, right? Yeah. And then inside-wise, I mean, besides Micah, I mean, we've had some solid guys there, but no guys that, like, what about dominate a game.
0: Huh? Did you like Romero? Didn't you play with Romero? Did you play with Romero in, in in Montreal or no? D- who Dario? Dario? Yeah, Dario Romero. Yeah, I played with Dario. Yeah, two years. But that's what I'm saying. Do you think he's one of the top four? Who would be no. the Who would be the fourth D tackle? Who would be the second D tackle?
1: Top. Oh, Dario would be nine because I mean he he had great hustle and great motor. He wasn't uh, like he didn't have great technique like he had you know he's one of those effort guys he's gonna yeah he never he's never gonna get a low he's gonna make a play 25 three yards on the field that was his type But just for his like raw natural ability i mean khalif had some talent mitchell i didn't have him that long yeah yeah i mean he had some he's some real talent in there he's i mean so he,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah i mean Khalif could have played khalif could have played left tackle and made a lot of money and played a long time
1: well, I mean, he could have still be playing if he'd keep his mouth closed and understand what he was doing. I was like, man. And look, now I know he a pirate. You know, we got to <laughs> stick together. But I was like, no, this man didn't. <laughs> yep, and yeah, he did. But I mean, what about you as far as what about you? Okay, uh, how about this? Who's the best running back you ever, you ever played with? best running back or receiver.
0: Best running back you ever played with? 'Cause you play with two Hall of Famers, so a lot of people can't say that. I play with a lot of great running backs. Cause you think just like Cornish, Joff, Tyrell Sutton, Brandon Rutledge. And he played with West Cates. Wes um Ken Simonton, Demetrius Summers. Demetrius Summers was number one over Rick uh Reggie Bush coming out of high school. Yeah. Right? Tony Stallings. I still think the best one is Joff. I think Joffrey's the best running back. Joffrey knew so much, and I think what helped Joff out a lot was the trust of his O-line. I don't think Cornish ever really trusted his O-line. That's why he got to the line a lot of times and got stuck and didn't try to bounce or try to cut back late. There wasn't ever any trust with Cornish. And I think that's why. Well, how do you teams. get 1,500 yards if you don't have trust, Nick? Man, Cornish got 1,509 games. Cornish is uber talented. Like, we're we're taking ta- like, talent-wise.
1: Oh, no, no, no. I Cornish didn't say is talent.
0: No, I know. But yeah. that's what I'm saying. Talent, like, Cornish is super talented. And he had a gear. Like, he had a gear. Nobody even seen that gear until three years in. Yeah. Right? He, have, he, does, he, does, he, have a, he does have a top end. 2009, like, 2010, you start to say, oh, okay. This, this dude's got a gear and I it's a bigger back. I just to corners today. We're going to uh, be meeting for um, lunch on Thursday, Wednesday. Yeah, he, he just messaged me. But, no, like, I, I just think – I think Joffrey, his style, he wasn't a home run hitter. He could break long runs, 30, 40-yard runs. Wasn't a home run hitter. But he gave you everything as a complete back. It was and he's the only blocking. person we
1: know that we eat eat a Wendy's cheeseburger
0: and fries and a Coke before the game. Before the game, <laughs> double I was quarter like, pounder, dude, you're double this. quarter pounder, super sized fries, five, super sized Coke, and sit there two hours before the game, eat all that, get up, put his stuff on, and go rough there, like two <laughs> like it ain't nothing. I was like, what? But was he crazy. had he had like six hundred ninety yards in the last five games uh, in two thousand four. On a four and fourteen team when he came in for like the last five or six games.
1: He I was a like coach. Sure.
0: He put up like one ninety in uh well, was, like one ninety against Toronto.
1: Dude, that's how I met him. That's how I knew him when I came up. But how we all got together was that I knew Joffrey cause I was a assistant D line coach on a Ryan fire when he was a running back. Oh, okay. And yeah. um and, and I was a I was a guest, I was volunteer coaching, you know, volunteer coach because 'cause I'm in the league. Yeah. Trying to get the experience, coaching experience. And then he was – and then so when I finally – when I came up here and he was here, then that's when Jones gave him his number and that's when I met you and him at the at the KIG. And my <laughs> life has been downhill ever since.
0: <laughs> it's only gotten better. Uh, but I'll tell you, I think I think the best receiver I ever played with was Ken Young. Rambo Lambo. It was only – he only had one year where he put it all together and – he looked like he was going to be a second year doing it when Big Hill Horse called him towards uh, ACL. And then he had the arthritis in his Achilles and stuff that hampered him. But a guy that could run a 4-2-40, could run every route in the, in the playbook. We used to go four by one and just single Rambo up or three by two and put a tight end over there, and then give him the motion, single him up. Like you couldn't stop it. That's the no. reason the backside half started staying on the backside.
1: I'll tell you what, any defense you see of mine, you can mark this down. The half
0: ain't leaving. <laughs> that's what I always always tell the – I used to tell bridge that when they, when they was, he was playing for um, Sass because Mac loves four by one. I was like, you don't have an advantage in four by one if the halfback stays on the backside because they don't have to even consider the diagonal because if there's no diagonal, then <laughs> he's got a double team over there, and that's a wasted guy, and if the – diagonal does come he's covered he's just gonna you're catch it playing, you're still playing four on three because you sent the diagonal away yep so now and you you and you're, you're free safety and you're, that's what i'm saying now you you're, got free to on, you're free going to, on, you're free to pass it off to, to your half, half. So yep so mm-hmm. you got four on three so playing four on three doesn't
1: work well i mean and then the craziest part is is you still got and you still got even if you Try to link your back out. You still got a three on two if you keep your half side because you got your corner, of your wheel, and your half. I mean, corner, your wheel, and your, and your half, and now you got your three on two you your laughing. Yeah. So it's still but that's what I'm saying. I mean, you're you still out can run number anything number you want. Your defensive playbook.
0: You're outnumbered everywhere in four by one when the half stays backside. Yeah, but
1: I still, I still, it, I like to play with it and send my half backside because if you got an athletic wheel, then you can just back your corner off and let the wheel jam him and slow the and all. Yeah, that's that. That's that New England. They put that big well, New England they go three by one and New England was out there they putting um uh, was it Mayo or whoever out there jamming jamming uh Jimmy old boy and he missed him about five times but if you miss a jam you still got to restart and stop yeah, yeah. you got to move to get out the way
0: that's a big boy you out there too you can't just release yeah, off
1: the him, long balls like he he, he you so I mean but yeah I mean it's it it'll be interesting to see so do you think uh,
0: CFL is gonna get played this year? Uh I think it comes down to money. I think all of it is is money. I think every decision being made is a money decision. I don't think it's anything more or anything less. It's all about money. If the money is there, they're playing. If the money's not there, they're not.
1: Well, you gotta think. Well, my question to you is this, okay? How do you do a personal contract? So say we'll just say Nick Lewis contract, and I want your thoughts on this. So Nick Lewis's contract is a $100,000 roster bonus, which players do have pass, fail, whatever. Do you prorate that if you play half the season? So is it 50? Or what if the player don't sign off on it? Do you have to play him to 100? Or do you cut him because he is a key player to get a 100 grand guarantee and a grand pass fail anyway? So he's a good player. you try to contract up? Like I think those are a lot of
0: things that like need to be addressed I think you can prorate ba- uh, base, but you can't prorate nothing else. You can't prorate. I mean, you could I mean, you can, I mean, you, you can but it have to be you can prorate housing because it's it. monthly based anyway, right? But you, so you can't can, housing, but. But you I don't can, think you can prorate that? Not but I mean, if you do, if you did
1: prorate it, it would have to be agreed upon by both parties. Like you
0: can't just, like I mean, I can't say God owe you a hundred and you just half the season, so here's fifty. But that's like saying these guys that are signed that are signed since um, April. And they're like, oh, well, we're going to prorate your signing bonus that you haven't gotten yet.
1: Right? Yeah, but technically, but isn't your signing bonus? So, say for example, if I'm giving you 100 and your salary for the year is 200, technically that's 50% of your salary. So, if I'm prorating your other player to 50, wouldn't that be only common because you didn't have your salary because you don't have the season? Wouldn't it be common practice to get the 100? That's what I'm saying. like, yeah, saying. I don't saying think that, you
0: can prorate the signing bonus or the roster bonus. Anything monthly, you can prorate. Because so my, que- so my
1: question to you is this: Then, so say for example, Matt Nichols got a two hundred fifty dollar, two hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollar pass fail. Yeah, his salary is one fifty, so he makes him three fifty in the year, and that's how they doing the for the cap purposes and putting more money in his pocket. Season goes halfway. You mean to tell me so they're gonna have to pay him the whole two hundred and fifty plus seventy five? So he's
0: making more money in a pro year than he would make in a normal year. But here's my thing: they're talking about losing potentially ten million dollars without playing, right? If the if the government gives them one hundred fifty million dollars, that's ninety million dollars. The CFL contracts will equate to about fifty four million dollars you know i know it's 5.2 a team but then you know we marking uh extra players and stuff and all that stuff Yeah, injuries yeah yeah, so you still gotta i still feel like that's even if you say 55 million that still puts you at 145 million of the 150 million that you're getting from the government and that's paying full contracts this is where i have the issue it's not about the the money if they're getting it from the government to play football then everybody should be paid fully, right? I know mm-hmm. coaches have taken pay cuts and, and things like that. I think they should be reimbursed, their pay cut, if they get the $150 million. And it's just really – it's a really crappy thing. Oh, I'm not. That coaches well, you, don't have – coaches don't have any union, and they really just stand back and just hope and pray that these two – can come to sense of something to allow it to go through. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the, I think that's the hard part. If the money's there, everybody should get their money. This should not be a year where the owners just make money. Right.
1: Well, I mean, technically it'd be a year that some owners finally get to make money because they won't have to be in the red where they're only losing X amount of dollars. But, I thought they only they only get the 190 if the season doesn't get played, right? No, oh, I don't know. Well, see, because they were asking for – initially they were asking for 30 if it was only – they missed four weeks of the season. I think it was like another number if they missed this. And then if they don't play the complete season, I'm almost certain on this one. If they don't play the complete season, then they get 190 or whatever. that The biggest number that they ask for is if they don't play the complete season. But – the irony in the whole thing is, is that the league made two hundred some million dollars revenue last year.
0: Yeah, and, and but, my, you know, course, but if I'm TSN, where, where do you I got this money.
1: If you made two hundred million dollars,
0: and then SASS said they lost two hundred thousand. Yeah, right. If um, if if I am well, all but, you got
1: to remember though. You got to remember, publicly traded company, tra- publicly public teams don't want to make
0: money. Yeah, they have to spend ninety percent at least.
1: Yes, right.
0: So, therefore,
1: therefore, that's what gets dicey, because yes. now you get teams, you get the four public, the three public teams with Winnipeg, Sask, and um, whoever the third one is, um,
0: Edmonton,
1: and Edmonton. You get you get those teams, and where they're public, they have to have their books be transparent. Whereas a private team like you know Calgary or BC can go in and pull their coaches in the office and say, you're going to take the state or you're not here. Where public, it has to be public knowledge because you can see the books. Yeah. So, I mean, and how you police that? Like, I mean, it's just so unfair because you don't have a union with a unionized standard
0: of practice. Every team is different. Every team, has different. every team has different medical. Every team has different standards. Every team has different this, that, and the third. Like, that's the hard part. The Yankees pay, like, 12 other teams, like 40% of their contracts. Yes. They're doing this to keep them in the league. So they pay them enough to stay in the league, but not enough that they can compete with them, really. Like the Royals, they pay their contracts, but the Royals have to build through scouting farm, and through farm, their farm, and farm systems. And right? So it takes them – it's yep. a 10-year process for these teams to be competitive. And you see, the Brewers – work are competitive but th- it's only like two years because then the guys that are really good in that check gonna got, get that going check to somewhere else exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly that's but see and that's why i see the cfl has to go to something to where everybody in the league has to share revenue i i i would say this and if i had the money i would do it there'd be one owner in the east and one owner in the west and they would own the East and the West. And then they don't need to split that much. So then all the revenue goes to those two people, right? Having nine owners for nine teams is ridiculous because now everyone needs to make money. And I mean, you can still keep SAS, Edmonton, and, and, Winnipeg as that. So now you have two people owning three teams each. And now even if they profit a million off this team, they're not going to lose over that on the other two teams.
1: Yeah, but isn't that – what's the difference in a team profiting a meal, i.e. asking Calgary profiting 50 grand and still be the same if I own all three teams? The operating – I'm still going to have a director. I'm still going to have – the director's job of business is still going to be to make money, so he's still going to handle it like that. So, like, even though you have one owner – like, for example, when Braley owned two teams – when he owned the two teams, the two teams still – He know, was owning two
0: teams that didn't have a chance to make money.
1: Yeah, but the, my point of what I'm saying is that no matter what, the teams are still – because they're on the one umbrella, you're still going – that's just like saying that the um, the Raptors are cool. The Raptors are cool with the blue, uh, blue Jays not making no money. Or, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, not really if you're still owned by the same team because every entity still has individual hires that – need to be profitable or successful to keep their jobs, i.e.
0: But, you know, I be, I'm a firm believer that they dump losses into the CFL as well, just like they put COVID case numbers on shot victims and things like that. I believe that there's owners that use it as tax break instead of using it well, as
1: why, – Well, why, 100% they do. That would be one of the main reasons that, that <laughs> they are owning
0: the team. That's what I'm saying. So they use it as a tax break, Dude. not as a really. I mean, I don't need you, to make then you money. also got your foundation. I don't need to make the money because I'm already making money, but I can make more money in this business as long as I'm losing a little bit in this business. Don't want to lose too much because then it's not worth it. Correct. Yeah, you're right. So then players can't get more money because they don't want to make more money. They have no input money. Then, they have a player that don't want to make more money. No. I'm saying the owners have no incentive to make more money in the league revenue, so they're like, well, we're losing money, so how can we pay you more money? But at the same time, they're losing money and taking tax, tax as a tax break to help out their other businesses so they can get more money coming back to them. Correct. So they're winning yes. on the back end. The players are never going to win on this model.
1: But now, but even even if you – even if you change to revenue sharing, which a lot of people has been floating that around, the biggest problem that I have in revenue sharing is, is that you have a salary cap already. Yeah. So you you it's an equal equal playing field. I mean, it's not. I mean, Toronto's the largest market with the worst attendance. How do you equate that? Like, so
0: how do you make that better? How do you fix it? It's gotta, you got to do better with marketing. Like we know CFL doesn't market. There's no CFL anything outside of the season. There's no marketing in Toronto, there's no marketing in Vancouver, there's no marketing in uh Montreal. Like if you play football in the east, it's a total different lifestyle than if you play football in the west. Yes. Right. If you play football unless in you South, play in Ham- Calgary, Winnipeg, yeah, Hamilton's different. Hamilton's like a Western team in the East, but if you play in sas Montreal—I mean, sas Calgary, uh, Edmonton, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Winnipeg—I do. You really feel like a professional
1: athlete. You really do. <laughs> and then when you play in Toronto and Montreal, you feel like
0: I don't know. Montreal was jumping last year when they started winning. Yeah, if you start winning in Montreal, they're gonna know you. Yeah, right? but I mean, but also that, that
1: just—that's just the the the. Uh, a cheating part about it too is that like that just goes to show how fair weather those fans are.
0: Like, but it's you know, more like, of an event in Montreal. Right. It's a beautiful it's day more, on a Saturday. it's bread
1: here. Like it's bread here out, out west. Out west it's like you're boing with a rider blanket. You have your first game at five. You have season tickets at 18. You're on the waiting list at 18. You know what I mean?
0: It's mm-hmm. totally different. Totally different. I got one last question for you. Which is harder, playing for Huff or coaching for Huff? <laughs> um,
1: probably playing for him. Coaching was coaching was a breeze. Like I mean, coach. I mean, he's like me. I mean, I mean, I got my pattern, and my style out for him loosely. Like I mean, you don't micromanage; you trust the guys to do their job. Like coaching was, you know. I mean, I, I'll tell you a funny story though. <laughs> Speaking of like, which was harder? <laughs> I'm a D-line coach. We um second in the league in sacks. <laughs> we gotta get we gotta get three sacks in the last game to lead the league. Now I I think I did I have a bonus to lead the league in sacks in my contract? I don't know, I might have. So anyway, we're playing Edmonton last game of the season in Edmonton. And the um, Cats, it's second. Was it second? No, 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 third and one. It's third and one and third and two. So I forget who it was, but one of the D line jump outside. So you know how you know how Everton sideline, you know the business sideline like this, right? Yeah. So the play was here. No, the play was here. The play was uh like the forty, the forty, that like the forty going in where they have that sawmill thing is where they got the tarps on the thing. Yeah. So like the forty there, they jump off sides on a hard count. We know they hard counted because they go pump the ball, but they jump outside. All I hear is, they're trying to get effing sacks. What the hell is going on? Where's the <laughs> I hear her yelling this. But, so I'm running the other way. So, like, the game is going on down here. I hear him yelling looking for me. i take off running this way. <laughs> <laughs> By the time Coach Huff catches up to me, what the hell are they doing? They're trying to get sacks. I was like, yep, I already got them out. As I'm running down, I'm just throwing D-laming in there. Just grabbing them, throwing them in to take the four guys out. So by the time Huff called up to me, I was like, yep, they're already out, got you. We <laughs> But Huff makes you, Huff is like your like your cool grandpa. Like he, so that authoritative figure where he makes you want to work hard because he works hard. I mean, he's there at 30 5 o'clock before everybody on the regular. Yeah, so he makes you want to work hard and you understand you see the success that he has because he worked so hard. So like you and you can always call him and ask him or talk to him about anything. Like even last year in my first year as a head coach, you know, if I had any questions or whatever, any issues arise that I want some advice on, like he was readily available there. And but like playing for him. It was different because you didn't really play for him because he was a head coach. So, yeah. like, you know, your your relationship with your head coach is more of putting out fires and that type of thing as a defensive captain than anything else. And then – but as, you know, Chris Jones was tough to play for, though, at uh, the D.C., but, I mean – but I love Jones, and he – you know, I use a lot of his stuff in the defense, and my mindset is a lot of things come from him. So – but he was tough to play for, and the reason he was so tough to play for because you just didn't know what you were getting. Like, I mean – like, huff is huff. Jones yeah. is one minute he might be cool. I mean, you work, you 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 know him personally as well. Yeah. And the next minute he might not be that cool. So it's like he, he, it's just trying to find your treading. But once you find that and you understand your boundaries with him, I mean, he was a great coach to work for too. I mean, I've been yeah. fortunate enough to be, you know, with some great head coaches and to see it done a multitude of ways. I mean, I've seen Bill Parcells. You know, it's his way or the way. I've seen him chin check Jerry Jones in front of the whole team. So like, I mean. And nobody checks jury. So, like, I've seen that happen. So, when you see those coaches and how they handle situations, I mean, and that was probably one of the most, one of the coolest things about when I did get relieved of my duties, the phone calls and the text messages from, like, you know, the who's who of big deals of coaches down south and here (coughs) and all that stuff to be able to, you know, to tell me, keep my head up, you need anything, I'm here, and that type of thing.
0: Yeah. One more. Top three coaches you played for. <coughs> they um, don't have to be head coaches. They could have been your position coach. Or a defensive coach. I mean, guys are
1: like, Zim was great. He was a DC. He was a DC in uh, Dallas. He's a good dude. Who's I mean, that? I like, uh, Mike Zimmer. He's a head oh, coach. Oh, Mike Zimmer? The- yep. <laughs> I like, um. Like he was a good coach. I mean, you have to put I have to put Huff up in there, just because um, just because of the knowledge and what I've understand. I mean, I love Gruden. Dungey was Dungey. Like it was so totally. Like I mean, every coach. I think every head coach that I've had, I've tried to take a little bit of it. Like I like Gruden's fiery in this. I love that Dungey's even kill. Like Dungey. They- doesn't get here, he doesn't get there, he's here. yeah. And how he manages uber stressful situations and you don't see him stressed. And that's what, like, I mean, that's that was crazy because my mom said that on the sideline of a game. She's like, baby, there's a tight point again and you just look so calm and cool. And I was like, well, I learned that from Dungie and I asked Tony about that. I mean, Coach Dungie about that. And I was like, you know, why, why do you look so cool? I was like, are you just dying inside? Like, are you panicking inside? He goes, when you look at me and you see I'm cool, what does that make you do? He said, it gives you, I said, it makes me be cool. He said exactly. So you know you understand that as, as everybody's looking at your demeanor, how are you handling this pressure? And that's how you have to understand it. I mean, so I mean, you take I mean, even Tressman and his analytical approach to the game and his you know boom 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 and that type. I I looked at that part you know and and that type of thing. I mean, I took the X's and O's from a bunch of coaches.
0: Yeah. I
1: mean, so, I mean, it's, and, I mean, I, I've, I've been lucky. I mean, and probably the most influential coach I would have to say is Rob Marinelli. hundred percent. He's the D line yeah. coaching um, with the Raiders right now. Uh, he, he, I would definitely say he's definitely the most influential coach because <laughs> you can ask any one of my players that those inside hand save your life. I mean, that, that move has made those guys a lot of money and I got it from him and he taught me the things about the D line and even the D line as, as a unit and, and not in that individuals and work together, rushing together, playing a run together in this system, in the, the system that he implored there, I took it and brought it to Canada and expounded upon it and made it to the Canadian game in the front. And that's why every year that I've been in this league, I've been able to be upper echelon in sacks. Yeah. Because of those things and because of the Simpsons you've been able to implement and those type of things. So I would have to say that Rod is definitely the most influential, but I mean, I've been blessed in that department. I mean, even the yeah. position coaches and coordinators—they—they—they're head coaches now. So I mean, it's one of those things where you've been fortunate. I mean, I got a great mentor circle of things, and and, and just I just want to be a positive influence on you guys, the younger coaching generation.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely, man. Definitely that, and I you know I appreciate the ability and uh, the chance to come to BC. I had a blast. I, I enjoyed it, man. It was a, it was definitely a great ride. I enjoyed being a part of the team, being a part of the everyday process. You know what I'm saying? Went to work every day to to try to better the situation and, and give us the best chance to win, man. And I, and I felt like, you know, those last seven games, of, you know, we was on their ass, you know what I'm saying?
1: Oh, 100%. But, I mean, with anything, like, we will ride again and we will be successful. You can believe that.
0: Yeah. What you got well, next, I appreciate man? you having me on, guy. What's next? Anything next or what you're doing now this year When you're for the year off? you have anything big planned for the year off? Or?
1: Um, well, I was going to spend a lot of time with my family. I thought I was going to get to stampede for the first time and maybe get to tailgate for the first time, but those look very bleak at this moment. But I mean, I have a few um, had a few college things in the work that got shelled because of COVID and then the NFL, as you know, I had um, five or six six interviews and those type of things so like I mean I had some some good some good things in the work there but I mean again because of COVID you don't know if your season the season's going to even take place or if it does if it's going to be this and that so I mean I still haven't said officially that I'm not going to coach this year but I mean I either do I mean I, I might do some TV and radio which is always an option so I mean I got a lot of options to do but most of the important I just want to you know, get myself in I'm still working on my defensive playbook and my outline of my team and, you know, tweaking the things that I've done over the past year. So when you do get that call again, you're ready for it, whether it's a B coordinator or whether it's a head coach or whatever, the, you know, whatever it may be, you know, you just want to just keep helping people and helping grow in the
0: individuals. And that's what you try to do. You're going to let people know your Twitter so they can follow you. What is a oh, biscuit nine, five, nine, five. You don't have an
1: Instagram, do you? No man, Instagram is the devil, man. Mm. Telling you, Instagram is the devil. That sound like I sound like my grandma. I sound like your grandma. Don. <laughs> Lord, baby, you gotta get off there, man. That Instagram is the devil. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bunch of hope and dreams. Uh huh. It is. All it, I just, I just don't. I'm just not a fan of showing. Showing people what they can't – like, living vicariously. Like, now people equate success on likes and scribes and subs and those type of things when when it shouldn't be like that. And and, and I feel bad for the kids because, yeah, you're growing up in a digital age, but, like, you're basing your self-worth on somebody liking your picture or somebody commenting on, like, cyberbullying. Like, what? Cyberbullying? Like, somebody bullied me, what did they tell you? Punch the bullet in the face, but you can't do that behind the keyboard. Like, you see what I'm saying? So, like, it's so – like, this is just a totally different animal these day and age. So, like, I mean, that's what you want to try to, like, that's why I don't be really getting on that stuff, because I just find that it gives you a low self-worth. I mean, get out and volunteer, feed some kids, and get back into the community, and that's how you get your worth, not a Photoshop picture when you don't even look like that in a two-piece type thing. So, I mean, it is what it is. I can appreciate the choir about things like that. But anyway, we don't have we don't have another hour. <laughs>
0: Indeed. Well, brother, I appreciate you for coming through. I had a blast. Thank you. Hey, man, that was long. I mean, shoot, you better cut that down, but you gotta edit that
1: thing. Nah, we good.